All right, well, my name is Derek, and I want to welcome you to this uh, brand new series that we're going through called Faith That Works. And, um, you know, no matter where you find yourself in your faith journey, maybe you're up on the mountaintop or you're down in the valley, uh, my hope for you is that through this series, you would find faith that works. So the the content we're going to be digging into for this series comes from uh, a guy named James, who was the brother of Jesus Christ. And um, this is a letter that James wrote to the church, and um, it was basically a group of Jewish Christians. And this letter was considered so influential, so powerful, that it was circulated among the churches, and then it was, it was really so revered that it, it came to be part of the New Testament canon that was adopted into the Bible. And, you know, maybe you're here um, this morning, you're with us on Grace Live, and, um, and you know, you're, you're still trying to figure out exactly what it is that you believe about Christianity, or maybe, maybe you know, you're, you're, you're not sure what to think about the Bible, and, and is it something that's authoritative, or, you know, maybe you're just a, maybe you're just a skeptical person. Um, and, and I want to know, want you to know that if that is the case for you, um, you're in good company because James was very, very skeptical. In fact, and this may surprise a few of you, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, did not actually believe that his brother was anything special. In fact, for Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry, uh, James didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah. And um, we know this from looking at the different gospel accounts, the biographies of Jesus. And uh, we, we see one of them here um, from one of Jesus' disciples named John, as he writes in, in his account, chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. He says, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee, that was like kind of on the outskirts of the region, and go to Judea. That was like the epicenter where everything was, you know, religious life and all the people were. He says, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, was James just wanting the best for his brother Jesus? Well, we see why he said this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So they're like being sarcastic. They were skeptical. And Jesus' entire life, Jesus, or, uh, James did not believe in him. And then a crazy thing happens. Jesus is arrested. He's crucified. He's dead and he's buried. And the next thing you know, the early church starts to sprout And here is James. Wouldn't you know it? James, the brother of Jesus. And he is one of the prominent leaders, one of the prominent figures in the early church. And some of you are going, oh, that's convenient. So Jesus is dead. And they need like, it's a leadership void, right? I mean, they need people to be leaders in the church. And so you know, maybe you're thinking, oh, it's a pretty lucrative gig, right? I mean, you know, early church and Jesus had all these followers. And so, of course, James steps in. Well, wasn't that lucrative if you really think about it? Because basically the job description is, you know, to, to lead this fledgling movement that is essentially 
a ministry to the marginalized, to the oppressed, to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It was caring for that community and spreading this message, proclaiming that Jesus was in fact the son of God who came to this world to rescue it. And, and basically what you got if you, if you were a leader in this lucrative uh, ministry is you got this life of sacrificial service under constant threat from the powers of Rome and Judea that ultimately would promise you the same fate as Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is what we know from history, from Jewish historians and from Christian historians. That's actually what did happen to James, the brother of Jesus. He was in fact killed for this claim that his brother was actually the son of God. So here's the question. Why in the world would, would James, who didn't believe at all, right? Why would he go from a non-believer, a total doubter and skeptic of his brother during his brother's life to now after his brother's dead, go around proclaiming that his brother is actually the son of God? What is it that would possess him to do that. And let me ask you this. What would it take for you to believe that your own brother was the son of God? I think it would take a lot, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, you can't even fathom it right now. So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. James says this dramatic turnaround. And the reason for that turnaround, we find in something that the apostle Paul wrote. In his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, um, Paul is writing about how Jesus appeared after he was crucified. He appeared as the risen Lord to many people. And here we see in verse 7, he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. So, once Jesus appears to James, everything changes for James. Everything changes. And this is actually why, if, if you're a skeptical person, or maybe you're still trying to figure out what it is that you believe about the Bible, that this is why you can lean into this letter. This is why you can really trust these words. Because here's the thing. James didn't write this with some preconceived notion. You know, James, it wasn't like he just loved his brother so much and he, he just wanted to see his brother's legacy preserved. And so here he was just writing about the great works of Jesus. No, 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 no. He didn't believe at all. Didn't believe at all. Didn't believe anything. And now after the fact, he meets Jesus resurrected. And now he's writing this letter, basically going around trying to figure out, okay, what is it that Jesus taught? Because he didn't believe he wasn't part of the whole thing. And so, so I just, I love this because you have a much more objective look at who Jesus is. He's, all he's trying to do is basically point us to Jesus and his teachings. So the thing that we love about James, for those of us who um, enjoy this, this uh, book of the Bible, is James gets right after it. I mean, this guy is just a direct, highly practical guy in matters of faith. And it's very instructive for us in our faith. So 
Here's what we're going to do to kind of kick off uh, this series that we're going to spend the next few weeks covering, is I want to get into really what is this letter all about? So what's, what's the context for it? Um, what is the theme? What is James driving at? Because once we understand the theme of this letter, then everything else that's in the letter, all the commands and instructions and everything else kind of makes sense in light of the theme. So um, where we really find James's thesis, his theme, is, is in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And so I want us to look at just two verses for a second, because these really speak uh, to the heart of it. Verses uh, 14 and 24, chapter 2. James says, uh, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, what is so interesting about that is how what what those two verses say lines up with what the Apostle Paul says. So I want you to, to, just as you hear these verses, some of you are going to feel extraordinary tension. You're going to immediately sense a problem here. Look at what the Apostle Paul, writer of many of the New Testament books, says in Romans 3.28. He says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a very, very famous passage, Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So here we have Paul and James, and they seem to be in direct contradiction with one another. You guys notice that? We have Paul who's basically saying, there's nothing we can do. It's purely a gift of God. It's what Jesus has done for us, and it's by faith in him alone. And then you have, you have James who says, and I'll read verse 24 for you again, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So which one is it, guys? I mean, is James right or is Paul right? Seems like a blatant, contradiction in the scriptures. What do you do when you come across a problem like this? What do you do when you have kind of a crisis of faith or you're, you, you open up your Bible or someone sends you something and you're like, well, how do you, how do you reconcile this? I'll tell you what I do. And I didn't used to do this, but I'm just at a place in my spiritual journey now where this is legitimately what I do. When I come across some sort of tension, problem, contradiction, some, some thing that, that I can't understand, I literally in that moment will just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I don't, I don't mean that uh, lightly. I'm, I'm serious. And here's why. Here's why I literally thank God for moments like these, for problems like these. I'm sure that for all of you guys, because you seem like very spiritual people, I'm sure that every time you open up your Bible, it just comes alive to you. I mean, you just open it up, and it's like, it's like the words just jump off the page. It's like God is just speaking 
speak into you like face to face. It's, it's incredible. You never have a time where you open it up and you're not riveted by what you read in God's word, are you? I mean, you're just, you're all over it all the time. There's never a time for you where the Bible would seem irrelevant or boring. You've never had a time where you've maybe started to nod off a little bit as you're trying to read. That's never happened to you, right? Yeah, okay. So this is why, this is why tension, problems, contradictions are actually things to be celebrated, you guys. Because here's the deal. We have now something, right, before us that makes us curious. It gives us an opportunity to lean in and say, whoa, what's up with that? It, it, it makes us pause. And now all of a sudden we say, God, I don't, I don't understand this. You're going to have to help me with this. And we lean in and we get curious and we try and figure it out. And ultimately, if we do the hard work, it leads us to a deeper understanding of God's word and a deeper understanding of who God is. And that is a blessing. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're going to have some fun today. We're actually going to take this very uh, challenge before us and we're going to try and figure out how, how we make sense of it. So once again, are we going with Paul that basically we're made righteous through Jesus Christ and faith in him alone? Or are we going through James who says, no, we're considered righteous by what we do and not by faith alone. Is it James? Is it Paul? Who is it? Which one's right? Which one's wrong? Oh, by the way, this is at the heart of the whole Christian message. This is the gospel. So this isn't just a minor detail. This is like the whole enchilada. Okay. What do we do? Well, the most important thing you do when you run into something like this is you must have context. Context is everything. Have you ever had a time where, you know, you were in some conversation and, um, or maybe you sent an, uh, an email or a long text and someone picked out like one little phrase that you said, somebody picked out one sentence or one soundbite that you said, and that became the thing that they honed in on. They forgot everything else that you said in the beginning, you know, the compliment sandwich, the whole deal. They, all that got, stuff got thrown out because all they heard was that one little piece, right? Context is so important. I want to tell you something that I said to my wife once. I'm not going to give you any context, but I only said this one time. I turned to her and I said, babe, you don't need the rest of that milkshake. <laughs> yep, I said that. Can I give you some context? Okay. Yes, it's amazing. I'm still alive. Okay. So I have the engagement ring in my pocket. We are sitting in a restaurant with the most extraordinary slow service I can imagine. And my plan is I want to propose to her as the sun is kissing the Pacific Ocean. We're in San Diego, California. She is taking forever on her milkshake. I've never seen anyone drink a milkshake more. So I'm done. I was done in like two minutes. We got to go. Okay. No, no one's around. It's the nice uh, uh, glass mugs, you know, and she's trying to get someone's attention to see if she can get it to go mug. And I'm like, babe, you don't need the rest of that milkshake. We got to go. All right. Does that help or not really? I'm still a jerk. Okay. It's fine. I only said it once. I'll never say that again. All right. Context is so critically 
important. So when we're looking at James, when we're looking at Paul, if someone ever just kind of throws one verse and then gives you another verse, here's what you got to do. You got to do the hard work. Just the same way you wouldn't want someone in a conversation to just focus in on one sentence for you. We got we to gotta back up. So better thing to do, let's look at Paul's whole paragraph. Let's look at James's whole point. In fact, better yet, let's look at the whole letter. Let's try and understand the audience that he's speaking to and where he's coming from. It's way too easy to just get microscopic and just say, this seems to be in contradiction to this. So what we find is when we look at the writings of Paul, Paul over and over again is refuting something called legalism. Okay, he is writing to people who are just completely stuck in this paradigm that that what we do ultimately kind of earns our way into God's blessing and God's favor. It's it's a legalistic way of thinking. Our our good works earn our way to God's love. Now, you may be thinking, what's the big deal with that? Well, actually, there's a couple of major pitfalls with legalism. Uh, one of them is that as we start to practice all of this good religious behavior, we start to feel really good about ourselves. That's cool. But then what happens when we notice other people not doing all the good religious things that we're doing? We start to feel really, really high and mighty. It becomes hard for us to love and to serve and to be humble in any way, shape, or form. We think we're better than other people. The second pitfall of legalism is it can wreck our relationship with God. And here's how. So you start doing all this great stuff for God. You know, you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're, you're, you're giving, you're, you're doing all this great stuff, right? And then all of a sudden, things don't happen the way you want them to happen. You know, you're a Houston Astros fan, and they lose to the Washington Nationals. Your prayers were not answered. You know, whatever it is, that thing at work doesn't happen. That relationship doesn't work out. You get sick. You know, there's a big struggle. And all of a sudden, guess what? You're devastated. Why? Why are you devastated? Because God owes me, right? I mean, I've done all this stuff. God owes me. That's legalism. It's very, very dangerous. So Paul is just, man, he is hell-bent on attacking this issue of straightening people out, helping them to see that's not Jesus at all. Now, on the other hand, opposite end of the spectrum, James is refuting something known as antinomialism. Okay? Antinomianism. And essentially, that's just a fancy way of saying anti-law. It's this idea that basically, look, if, if it's all about what Jesus has done for you and it's all about faith then guess what? You can do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. It's all about Jesus anyway. So just live however you live. And that was what James was, was addressing with his hearers. So what appears to be an apparent contradiction, when you have the context, what you realize is this. James isn't refuting Paul and his teachings. James is actually refuting an abuse of Paul's teachings. So, and you actually see it, it's, it's fascinating because again, in the New Testament of the Bible, what these are, these are letters. These are, these are letters that were going to churches, to Christians. And, and then there were response letters going back to Paul and back to James. And so what we see in one of Paul's letters, in his letter to the Romans, chapter three, verse eight, is he's actually addressing the abuse of his teaching. Look what he says. This is, this, again, this is Paul writing, not James. But he says, why not say, 
as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil. The good may result. If it's, if it's God's grace that abounds, let's just do the most evil thing we can. And that just shows God's grace is even more powerful. That's what they were saying. He's like, what? Come on, man. That's ridiculous. And what we find as we continue to push in and we look at more of Paul's writings is um, that Paul and James are actually on the same page here. Look, look at Galatians 5 verse 6. Again, this is Paul writing, but now this is really starting to look a lot more like James. Because Paul isn't just refuting legalism. In other parts, he's actually refuting antinomalism, the same thing that James is refuting. And he says, Galatians 5, 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. These these religious works that we do, they they don't have any value either way when we're in Jesus Christ, because it's Christ that matters. He says, the only thing that counts is faith, don't miss these next four words, expressing itself in love. It's faith expressing itself through love. To which James would reply, amen, brother Paul. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So with that bit of context, I want us to walk through James chapter 2, 14 through 19, which really set the stage for James's letter. Give us that background of understanding that then will help us as we dive in in the weeks to come to see where he's coming from with his other things that he's instructing us. This is what James writes. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? I want you to notice, faith is James's starting point. Do you see that? That's, he's assuming that that's where it all begins. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says, can such faith save them? They have faith but no deeds. And then he gives an example. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what we see here is that James and Paul are actually in lockstep saying the exact same thing. They are both in agreement as you read more broadly, as you read their letters, as they are not taken out of context, that they are both saying that ultimately it is our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. You want to know what makes you right in the eyes of God? It's not how you do all these different things to to measure yourself against a perfect holy God. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's faith in Jesus that saves. But here's the kicker. But it's genuine faith. Genuine faith is faith that works. Genuine faith is always accompanied 
by action. So, really the challenge that James is posing to his readers, and he's posing to us as we hear his words today, is this. And I, and I got to say, if you, maybe you're here right now and you just, you, you know, yes, I need a challenge. I, I, that, that'd be great. I'm just at a place in my faith where, man, I just need a little, I need a little punch. I need a little kick. Okay. James is your man. So this is your day. All right. He, he really is. He's, he's getting up in our face about this. And here's his challenge. Love that you have faith. It's awesome. Great. You've got faith. Beautiful. How are you living it out? That's, that's what James is all about in this letter. Yeah, faith is personal. That's great. It's private. I get that. That's what James is saying. But how are you living out your faith? How is it expressing itself? Is it just head and heart? Or is it actually moving? Is it actually measurable? And you're going to see that through this letter... James, he's a man of action. He, he really gets after us to live out our faith. And he, he basically has all sorts of challenges. And he, I'll, I'll just read you just a, a small sampling from, from these five chapters. But basically, James says, great, you got faith? Is that enabling you to persevere through your trials? Yeah, that's, you got faith, awesome. Is it helping you be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger? Okay, you got faith. Is that faith translating into you getting rid of immoral behavior? You got faith. Does that mean that you are about the business of taking care of widows and orphans? That it's preventing you from playing favorites when it comes to people of status versus people who are poor and marginalized and oppressed? Man, you got faith. Awesome. But... Are you hoarding your resources? Are you holding on to your wealth or are you being generous with it? You got faith, but are you showing people mercy? Are you living humbly? James says, faith is awesome, but it's got to be accompanied by action. Are you living it out? That is the challenge. How are you living out your faith. Now, that's a pretty grand challenge. You may say, man, James is pretty amped up here. Pretty fired up, you know? Take it easy, buddy. Um, why is he so fired up about this? I mean, okay, great. We'll live out our faith. We get it. You know, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Cool, cool, cool. James, whatever. Um, what's the deal? Why is he so fired up about this? I mean, is he just wanting us to be better Christians? Is he just wanting us to be more moral people? No. That's not it at all. I need to remind you. James, he thought his brother was a wannabe Messiah. He did not believe. And then after his brother was executed, dead, and buried, he came face to face with his brother again. Hello, that's a wake-up call. And in that moment, James had a revelation unlike any other revelation in his life, where he basically stepped back and went, oh my God. Is this really true? 
And here was, the, here was the revelation that James had. Wait, 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 wait. So Jesus, you're telling me? You're telling me, Jesus. You're God. You looked down on this earth, saw its beauty and its brokenness. You saw the pain and the suffering. And you decided to step down onto the pages of human history. You decided to take on human flesh. You're telling me you're not just my ordinary brother. You are the son of God who came to love and to serve and to show this world hope and redemption. He had this revelation, you guys, but that wasn't even the craziest part. That's not why he's fired up. It's what happened next. Because Jesus, when he came down, he, he walked around and he kept saying two words over and over and over again to anybody who would listen. He said, follow me, follow me, follow me. But he wasn't just saying, follow me, to try and build some huge fan club. It wasn't just for people to be able to cheer on those miracles or signs or wonders or healings or whatever else he was doing. He called people to follow him so that ultimately he could lay down his life and then turn it over to them to do the work. And this was the part where just everything came clear for James. And he realized what the Apostle Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 27. He realized this. Now you are the body of Christ. All of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus. Jesus Christ is no longer walking on this earth. His followers are. And we, his followers, are now known as his body. Each one of us is a part of what Jesus is now doing on this earth. This is the crazy thing. This was the mind-blowing thing for James. And this is why living out our faith is so critically important. It's not actually about being a great, pious, religious person. It, that's not it at all. The reason that James is, is calling us to this, he's writing to the early church and he's saying, guys, Jesus isn't here anymore, but we are. And I don't understand why, but he's basically saying that we are now the plan for the broken world. We're it. So guess what? If it's just head knowledge, if it's just heart knowledge, it's dead. We have to live it out. We have to be out there restoring hope to a broken world. We have to be loving people and serving people. We have to be the change that we want to see in this world. That is our purpose. And I got to tell you, some of you, you're here today or you're tuning in online and you've been trying to figure out what in the world is the point? What's the point to this life? You know, you're working so hard. You're trying to find happiness. You're trying to find satisfaction. Could it be? That the whole point, the whole purpose of life, the whole reason why we have been dropped down onto this planet is because we are part of a bigger plan that God has to restore hope to a broken world. And it's through our actions, it's through how we would love people, how we would serve people, what we would do in the big things and the small things that somehow 
some way would be part of this glorious plan that God has for this world that he loves so much. Could it be that that actually is the point? That's life. That's why we're here. In the midst of the job and the money and the relationships and everything else, maybe that's why we're here. We are agents for God, the body of Christ, his hands and his feet walking around this earth since he, Jesus, no longer is. So I just want to kind of one more time put James's challenge before you. It's awesome that you have faith. It's beautiful that you believe. But how are you living it out? It's not so you can, you know, wear your big Christian t-shirt and look so great. It's, that's not what it's about at all. How are you living out your faith in a way that this world would be better because you're walking around in it. So if you would, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head for a second. I just want you to just sit with this. God, I want to pray for everyone right now that you just help us to be challenged by these words of James. God, You know what we believe. You know where our heads are and our hearts are. And and you also know the challenges that come with faith today and how controversial and how sensitive and and all the different things that, that come with it. But God, if it is true, if it is true that we are actually your plan for this world, God, please help us. We need your help. Because you know those times when we don't have the courage to live it out. Or we don't have the discipline to live it out. Or we just flat out don't want to live it out. Because we want to live a different way. But God, if this world, if this world needs us, God, help us to live like you, Jesus. Help us to do the things that you did. We're going to need your help. We cannot do this in our own strength and in our own power. And we're grateful for your spirit that is alive and well inside of us. But God, please, just give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Make us sensitive to the promptings of your spirit. As we go out into this world, let us be a light. And let us be your hands and your feet. In Christ's name, amen.